Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 104, God-Fearing. Last time we discussed the whole 13-year reign of the Emperor Theophilus, minus his activities on the all-important Eastern Front. Today, it's nothing but that. The last bit of action in Anatolia which we covered was a raid and counter-raid following the end of Thomas's civil war. Michael felt the need to send a message that the caliph's support for the Slav was unacceptable, and the Arabs returned the favour. The caliph al-Mamun was the son of Harun al-Rashid. As you know, he'd been through a difficult civil war with one of his other brothers, and since then, he'd had his hands full dealing with rebellions in Syria, Egypt, and Azerbaijan. The Syrian rebels appeared in our story during Thomas's revolt, and the Egyptians when the Spanish Arabs fled from Alexandria to Crete. Now, the rebels of Azerbaijan come into focus. The Caliphate was, of course, a vast empire, and lots of people within it were not fully converted to Islam by the 9th century. The people living up in the mountains, particularly in Azerbaijan, which bordered Armenia, were one such people. This was the land of fire temples, which Heraclius went stomping through back in the day. When the Arabs arrived in the 7th century, they occupied the lowland cities and left those in the highlands to their own devices. But by 800, Arab settlers were being drawn to the area because of its mineral resources. These new arrivals began to encroach on the freedoms which the locals had enjoyed, and so when the civil war broke out, the Kuramites, as they became known, rebelled. The Kuramites were largely of Persian descent, but that whole area is a patchwork of peoples, and so we know that some of them were Kurds. The religious movement which united this group of people seems to have been a hybrid of Shiite ideas with older existing Zoroastrian ones. Their leader, Babak, assumed an almost caliphal position, being both commander-in-chief and spiritual leader. Whatever the exact nature of their beliefs, the Kuramites proved very difficult to dislodge. Tough, 
resourceful, and running a guerrilla campaign, they bested several caliphal armies, which were sent to put them down. At some point, contact was made with the Romans. It only made sense to see if allies in the West could help them maintain their independence. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Theophilus was apparently 16 when he became sole emperor. So it's not a huge surprise that his advisers asked him to wait until he was 18 before he rode out with the Tachmata to take on the Arabs. Remember that despite just hearing uh, all about his 13 years in power, at this stage, Theophilus is still the son of a usurper. Victory over the Arabs was still the surest way to secure the support of the army and establish legitimacy. So, in 831, when news of a raid into Cappadocia came, the emperor was chomping at the bit. His counterattack went so well that not only did he drive the raiders out, but his troops crossed into Cilicia and took prisoners from Arab-controlled territory. Marching home, the young Vasilevs was thrilled with this result and threw himself a triumph. He crossed over to Europe so he could ride through the Golden Gate on a white horse. The streets were decked with flowers and banners. He displayed his prisoners in the Hippodrome, presided over races, and made great gifts to the Senate and people. Of course, you can do what you like back home, but out on the border, the situation hadn't changed a bit. Mamun had some legitimacy of his own to shore up, so he prepared his forces for a significant assault on Anatolia. By July the following year, the caliph's intentions were known, and Theophilus offered peace terms. He was willing to return the prisoners he'd taken, but Mamun wanted war. A giant army swung into Cappadocia, and by September it had smashed the place up. Apparently the Arabs had caught wise to the locals' trick of hiding in underground hovels and began hunting them down. The local fortifications were sacked, and the fortress at Lulon, the first stage on the beacon system, was put under siege. Theophilus gathered his men and marched out to relieve the garrison, but a caliph-led army is always massive. And while Mamun remained comfortable at Lulon, one of his other generals met the emperor in battle and drove him off. When this news reached Lulon, the soldiers surrendered. Very pleased with this, Mamun left a garrison behind and went home dreaming of further expansion. The following year, 833, the caliph duly returned with his army and began to build a permanent walled camp at Tyana, the city nearest Lulon. Tyana's walls had been badly damaged in the initial raid, and so now Cilician workmen filed across the border and began to expand its defences. Allegedly, Mamun announced his intention to capture significant bases right the way across Anatolia on the route to Constantinople. That way he could subdue the whole peninsula and then take the Roman capital. If true, it was a frightening thought. But Mamun was not living in nearby Damascus. His capital in Baghdad was a long way away, 
and the troubled province of Khorasan even further. It seems unlikely, given the problems in the caliphate, that he would ever have achieved this goal. Perhaps he just wanted the propaganda value of annexing Roman territory, and certainly a base on the other side of the Taurus Mountains would have made life hard for the Byzantines. But while the walls of Tyana were being put in place, the caliph fell ill and died. His brother Mutasim became caliph, abandoned the construction and marched home. He had power to consolidate. While Theophilus was very relieved, especially as he was preparing a massive bribe to get Mamun to change his plans. The new caliph was determined to finally crush the Kuramites, and he'd recruited a new army that would finish the job. As we'll discuss at the end of the century, Mutasim favoured the recruitment of fringe peoples and even slaves to fight for him. These armies included many Turks from the steppes. He brought this new force to bear on the mountain rebels that autumn with significant success. Babak was defeated and fled deeper into the mountains, while another group of Kuramites were also badly mauled. This group were operating in the Zagros range, the mountains which separate Iran from Iraq. This latter group were commanded by Nasser, one of Babak's lieutenants. Such was the ferocity of the caliphate's onslaught that Nasser abandoned hope of linking up with the rest of his people. Instead, he took the brave step of traversing the Armenian mountains in winter and with 14,000 of his people, possibly more, descended into the Armeniacon theme in spring 834. To arrive on Roman territory under arms was a bold move, which is why we strongly suspect there had been ongoing diplomatic contact between the two sides. Nasser announced that his people were willing to join the Byzantine army and be settled in Anatolia. Theophilus was pleased to welcome them and immediately saw the benefit in these experienced troops with grudges against the Arabs joining his side. There are several things we don't know about this situation. Numbers are always tricky. We know that a fighting force several thousand strong was present, but whether it was as high as 14,000, we don't know. Certainly some men had abandoned their families in order to maintain their freedom. We know this because Theophilus gave the order for the new arrivals to be dispersed among the themes and insisted that Roman widows and spinsters marry them. Whether this was rigorously enforced, we don't know. Uh, More significant, perhaps, is the question of conversion. Some sources insist that the Kuramites converted to Christianity on the spot. Even if it was nominal, they knew they had to in order to serve in a Christian land, Uh, but other sources disagree or are more ambiguous. I think Theophilus's open-minded reputation allows for both possibilities. He certainly knew that nominal adherence to the one true faith was not actual conversion, hence the order for some Kuramites to marry into Roman families to aid their integration and to provide them with land to work. 
Another issue is whether the emperor could afford to pay thousands of new soldiers who just appeared on his doorstep. But as we saw last episode, it seems that he could. And that there was still land available to settle the Kuramites on. The Kuramites were dispersed across Anatolia, but on campaign, they would reform and be led by their own officers under their own general, a man named Theophobus. There is considerable debate about who exactly Theophobus was, but I'm inclined to believe those who say he was probably the son of a Kuramite general sent to grow up in Constantinople as a hostage. He would thus be a Kuramite by blood, but largely Roman in culture. The indications are that he may have grown up in the palace and been a favourite of the emperors, hence his Greek name. While the emperor was Theophilus, God-loving, his new general would be Theophobus, God-fearing. It seems that the young Kuramite was so favoured that he married into the imperial family, being wedded to the empress's sister. This position of trust perhaps explains why this large barbarian army was so warmly welcomed into Byzantine society instead of being viewed as a dangerous menace. Back in the Caliphate, a big campaign to wipe out the remaining Kuramites was being planned. In 837, the onslaught began. Many of the Cilician and Armenian border troops were called up to aid the Caliph's push into Azerbaijan. Babak realised that he was doomed without help, so he sent word to Theophilus, asking him to invade Arab territory. The emperor agreed. An unguarded border was a rare opportunity, and his new Kuramite troops were keen to do what they could to aid their countrymen. Taking no chances, Theophilus took as many men with him that the themes could spare. Most of the Tachmata, all of the Kuramites, and healthy contingents from the Anatolian themes. Arab witnesses were shocked at the size of the invasion force. We're probably talking 20,000 maximum, including retainers, but it's possible that this was the largest force seen in the East since Heraclius' day. The Romans headed through the Armenian mountains toward the city of Melitene. I've put up another of uh, C. Placidus's maps to guide you. Theophilus didn't want to bog his army down in protracted sieges, and so they passed by Melitene, which was very well fortified. However, riders went out to the surrounding towns, making it clear that tribute would be required if they wanted to avoid being attacked. The horde rolled southwest to the town of Sozopetra and set up a siege. Alerted to this threat, Mutasim had dispatched a contingent of Arab tribesmen to see if they could scare the Romans off. It speaks to the size of Theophilus's army that they stood and fought a pitched battle, something rare when encountering the Arabs. And the Byzantines routed them. The city was taken and sacked. Theophilus attempted to discern between Christians and non-Christians because we are in Armenia, a Christian country. But whether the rest of his troops did seems doubtful. 
His army then made slow progress across Armenia, capturing prisoners and hoovering up supplies. The Kuramites were accused by the Arab sources of being particularly cruel while on campaign. It wouldn't be a stretch to imagine these refugees taking out their aggression on the civilians they came across. He does seem to have left a lot of bitterness behind, though. Soon, Cash arrived from Theodosiopolis and other towns who were left alone. So, with plenty of booty and slaves in tow, the emperor turned his force around and headed back to Melitene. There they set up another siege, though it seems this was just to help loosen the purse strings of those behind the walls. Another Arab squadron arrived at this point and were again defeated. The emperor, very satisfied with his work, crossed back into Anatolia and sent word ahead to prepare another triumph. Again the city was decked out, and this time the baggage train was fit to burst with loot and prisoners. To top his last effort, the victorious Vasilevs rode in a race in the Hippodrome. He put on the colours of the blues, mounted a chariot, and won his race, though we can assume that his opponent was well aware of the expected result before he even put his boots on. The 24-year-old emperor looked every inch the Roman champion as he took his victory lap, but he must have been aware that his raid would not go unanswered. Mutasim did not turn his gaze away from the mountains. That summer, Babak was captured and executed. His followers were enslaved or driven into exile. By the autumn, thousands more refugees were again pouring across the border, seeking asylum. Theophobus was dispatched to the Armenia Con to find homes for these people and to integrate more Kuramites into the army. The numbers are, as usual, huge and implausible. But certainly the Kuramites now formed a very strong unit within the Roman army, more than capable of acting independently if they needed to. Mutasim was determined to punish the Romans harshly for their invasion. He seems to have called on a general levy of troops from Syria, Egypt and the borderlands to come join his main army the following spring. Crushing the Kuramites was not a glorious moment for the caliph's CV, but defeating the ancestral enemies of the faith would be. And as he was new to the job, he would have to lead a campaign in person sooner or later if he wanted to live up to his father's reputation. In April 838, he set off from his capital, making it clear to everyone that this would be no ordinary raid. No, he planned to sack Ancyra and Amorium. These were the headquarters of the Bacalarian and Anatolikon themes, respectively. According to one source, the names of these two cities were sewn onto the caliph's banners. Both cities were prominent targets, though the sources strongly suggest that Amorium was selected to humiliate Theophilus because it was the place of his father's birth and possibly his own. It seems that this preemptive warning was further degradation. So overwhelming were the caliph's forces that even giving the Romans advance notice 
would not save them. Recognizing the giant bear he'd just kicked in the shins, Theophilus ordered a call-up of his own troops. He gathered men from the European themes, the whole of the Tachmata commanded by Manuel, and all of the Kuramites under Theophobus. Men from the Anatolian themes would join him, but many of them were needed to garrison key cities, like Ancyra and Amorium. The suggestion was made that both cities simply be evacuated, but the emperor disagreed and pushed on to the Harlis River, which ran across the road to Ancyra. Here he based his army, ready to try and block the advancing enemy. Once more, numbers are impossible to agree on, but most likely Mutasim outnumbered the Byzantines two to one. The caliph split his forces into three columns. This was a necessity because the land can only support so many beasts and men before supplies run out. Two of these forces made their way up the main military road from Cilicia toward Ancyra. But Mutasim was in no hurry. Despite the boldness of declaring his targets in advance, he knew the danger which the Romans presented. He followed a day's ride behind his vanguard, watchful for any surprise manoeuvres from the Byzantines. The third column was commanded by his general Afshin, the man who'd finally defeated Babak the previous year. He marched into the Armenia Khan through the Pass of Melitene. With him were some of the Turkish troops recruited from the steppes, together with a large group of Armenian soldiers. Though the Armenians had long been subjects of the Caliph, they were hardly ever asked to fight fellow Christians. On this occasion, they did, and it's been suggested that the savagery of the Kuramites spurred them into action. The Caliph was keen to capture any Byzantine soldier his army came across so that he could learn exactly where Theophilus was. By July, the Emperor decided to launch himself north and try and knock Afshin's troops out of the conflict before they could link up with the rest of the Caliph's men. This meant leaving a much smaller force under the command of his cousin to guard the river while he took the cream of the army with him. When he learnt this, Mutasim was very concerned and offered a huge reward to any messenger who could reach Afshin with the news. But he needn't have worried. In late July, the two sides met. Afshin's men were resting at the plain of Dazimon. The flat ground allowed Theophilus to force battle. At dawn on the 22nd, the emperor advanced. Initially, his infantry pushed the enemy back with heavy losses. But during that morning, Theophilus decided to reinforce his left wing with Tachmatic troops. So they rode away from their original position on the right. About noon, Afshin unleashed his Turkish horse archers. They rode up to the Roman line and began peppering them with relentless arrow fire. The Byzantines fell back under the assault, 
giving the Arab infantry time to disengage and reform their lines. The imperial troops looked behind them for support, and those on the wing noticed that the cavalry carrying the emperor's standard had disappeared. They began to waver, worried that Theophilus had been killed in the fighting. Under further fire from the Turks, that wing disintegrated. The Roman centre was now exposed and driven from the field by the rallying enemy foot soldiers. With the infantry withdrawing in some disarray, the cavalry, which included much of the Tachmata and the leading Kuramites, found themselves fighting alone. Keeping the emperor from harm's way, Manuel and Theophobus retreated to their camp, which was on a nearby hill named Anzin. Afshin ordered his men to surround the hill. He was tantalizingly close to capturing Theophilus alive. The imperial army drew up in defensive positions, but Turkish arrows were picking them off one by one. Fortunately, heavy rain began to fall as evening approached, rendering the Turkish composite bows ineffective. As night fell, there was a good deal of panic. Although the military camp provided some protection, the Romans were in an extremely vulnerable situation. Afshin pushed his men to gather the siege equipment, which was being dragged behind them in their baggage train, and uh, bring it up to the hill. If he could smash the Romans out of position, he was looking at total victory. In the camp, some Romans became suspicious of their Kuramite allies when they heard them shouting things to the besieging army in their own language. It was an understandable misunderstanding, but the Kuramites had no interest in cutting deals with the men who'd killed Babak. With fear gripping the camp, though, Manuel persuaded Theophilus that he must break out of the encirclement immediately. Surrounded by Tachmatic troops, the emperor burst out of the camp, down the hill, broke through the lines, and escaped to the west. There were severe casualties, though, amongst those protecting him, including Manuel, according to some sources. Theophobus and the Kuramites also broke out and fled north toward Amisos. You can see these places on the map. The Battle of Anzin was a disaster. It effectively ended Roman resistance to the invasion. Amorium and Ancyra were on their own. But it wasn't a slaughter like Pliska. The majority of troops made it out alive, but their disarray ruined all the emperor's plans. The Kuramites, for example, refused to return to action, declared Theophobus their new independent leader, and occupied the town of Sinope. Briefly, I'll just pause to answer one question I suspect some of you may have. This was the first time it's reported that Byzantine troops faced off with Turkish steppe riders directly. And just as their ancestors had fared when facing the Huns, they were pretty helpless in the face of the composite bow. Roman training in this art had most likely disappeared completely after the rise of Islam. The Arabs didn't use horse archers, and so traditional cavalry, who relied on a charge and throwing spears, were all that was needed. The complicated skills of steppe archery were hard for foreign peoples to learn. Back in the time of the Strategicon, the empire had a fully professional army and 
auxiliary step warriors to help teach them. It's probable that by 829, even the Tachmata didn't practice this and would have simply adopted traditional cavalry tactics. The emperor made it to Amasia and linked up with most of his infantry centre who'd regrouped there. To his surprise, also waiting, were some of the troops he'd left behind to guard the Harlis River. Many of them had deserted when the caliph's giant army came into view. The remainder had fled to Ankyra, stripping the countryside of provisions as they went. When they arrived, the city had already been abandoned. Its inhabitants had no faith in their defenders. These remaining men, under the command of the emperor's cousin, then made it out to Amasia. Theophilus was desperate to reform his army and get them back in the field. But, of course, so many men had fled from battle, he would normally have to punish them. He couldn't berate these men, he needed them. So he executed his cousin for allowing the desertion of the men he'd left at the river. It was a bold and seemingly unjust move, but it sent the message that he was determined to continue the fight without having to punish individual soldiers. He sent some of the Tachmata onto Amorium and made his way westwards. Meanwhile, the caliph arrived unopposed at Ankyra. The empty city was plundered, but he was concerned about the lack of supplies in the surrounding fields. His men soon discovered many of the city's inhabitants who were hiding in the local salt mines. Once they'd discovered where they'd hidden their flocks, the Muslim army moved on. Theophilus now arrived at Dorylaeum, the staging post in the west of Anatolia. He was hoping to regroup there and then take whatever was left of his army to Amorium. However, messengers were waiting for him. Apparently, some of the soldiers who'd fled from Dazimon had made it all the way back to the capital. Either maliciously or innocently, they'd told everyone there that the emperor had died in battle. Apparently, some officials were agitating to appoint a successor, and rumour was that Alexius Musel, the Caesar, was going to be recalled from Sicily to take the job. Furious at this, Theophilus had to abandon his army and race back to the Bosphorus. Once there, he had any conspirators executed, and then rode as fast as he could back to Dorylaeum. But with this delay, the Arabs had reached Amorium. It was the 1st of August when they arrived at the city, and they surrounded it and put it under siege. Amorium was one of the biggest cities in Anatolia. Not a proud boast in the 9th century, but outside of the west coast, it was unchallenged. It was certainly the only major city which Arab geographers bothered to comment on. Its position as HQ of the Anatolikon had always drawn people to it. It had large circuit walls covering 50 hectares and 44 towers, according to one source. Three of the four Tachmatic commanders were now inside, along with the strategos of the Anatolikon, Aetius. He was well prepared for an engagement, though doubtless he was intimidated by the size of the caliph's army. The siege would last for two weeks, 
the Arabs began bombarding the walls to little effect. Attempts to fill ditches and get siege towers up against the wall were rebuffed. But on the third day, a Byzantine deserter informed the caliph of a weak point in the walls, which had suffered from water damage. His troops trained their mangonels on that section, and the stone breached. Theophilus needed time to get his soldiers in line, and so he sent ambassadors to negotiate with Mutasim. If the siege dragged on, perhaps there was hope. But the caliph kept these men waiting well away from the city, so that they couldn't report on the progress of his assault. Even with a hole in the wall, the defenders continued to fight back. Nine days of fighting proved beyond doubt that climbing over rubble into a hail of arrows is no picnic. Apparently Moorish and Turkish slave soldiers were ordered to lead the assault and were killed if they turned back. The Romans fought on bravely, but hope was dwindling. On the ninth day, the Arab army broke through and swept into the city. A large group of Romans made a last stand inside a church, but the invaders burnt it to the ground. Aetius occupied one of the city's towers and continued to resist for another day, but eventually the city was sacked and gutted. Half the population were killed or enslaved, according to Byzantine sources. Those taken prisoner included the empire's military elite, 42 of whom were martyred some time later back in the caliphate, so the legend goes. In the moment, Mutasim was not quite as gleeful as you might imagine. He got wind of a conspiracy against him amongst the troops. There was talk of elevating Mamun's son in his place, and he decided it was high time they all get back to safety with their spoils. He was still wary of Roman counterattacks, so he ended up taking a southerly route across Anatolia. This avoided the major centres of population, but meant he was marching through salty deserts along the edge of the Isaurian Mountains, where water was in short supply. His baggage train stretched for miles, and some Roman prisoners managed to kill their captors and make a run for it. They didn't get far, but they did convince the caliph to execute most of his unimportant prisoners to save his remaining supplies. In the short term, the sack of Amorium was a shocking tragedy for the Roman people. Aside from the human and material cost, it was clear as day that God was not showing much approval for his God-loving emperor. Such a humiliating defeat undermined much of the propaganda that Theophilus had cultivated. Between Mamun's threats to conquer Constantinople and Mutasim's massive army, many concluded that the bad old days were here again. The Arabs could seemingly do as they please, and no one could stop them. But with the benefit of hindsight, the campaign takes on a different complexion. Though it was hailed as a great victory, the journey home had cost Mutasim dearly. He had to compensate his troops for the loss of slaves, so he didn't see much from the profits of conquest. The seditious noises he'd picked up on were tensions between his new army and the old contingents. 
And this was just a small slice of the inner conflict of the caliphate, which will keep Mutasim and his successors busy for the rest of the century. Rather than the beginning of another assault on the Roman capital, or even just another kicking for the Byzantines, this campaign would prove to be the last. The last time a caliph would ever campaign in person against the Romans. The new professional army was needed in Iraq to police the caliphate. No one could afford to march to Anatolia with it anymore, and eventually, volunteers for jihad will be viewed as a drain on resources rather than defenders of the faith. In many ways, this is the end of Arab pretensions to threaten the empire's existence. From here on, the trajectory of the two realms go in opposite directions. The caliphate will never be as united or strong again, while the Byzantines are on the rise. There is some irony in Theophilus's legacy being so connected to this terrible defeat. In many ways, his reign is a turning point in a positive sense. That was no comfort at the time, though. Amorium's walls and a few other stone buildings survived, but otherwise the city had been demolished. Theophobus and his Kuramites were in rebellion, and iconoclasm, the ideology of the regime, had been undermined. It had been brought back to prevent another Pliska from taking place, and while practically this wasn't nearly so disastrous, it felt almost as bad. If the emperor had gone on living into old age, then this could have all been forgotten, a dark hour from which he recovered. But his premature death at the age of just 29 meant his low point would define him. Next time, we'll explore his final years and properly introduce his wife Theodora, who would be left in a very similar position to a certain Irene half a century earlier. Before I go, let me just recommend another history podcast. This is History on Fire by Daniele Bolelli. Uh, Daniele is a history professor in the US, but uh, speaks with a strong, his strong native Italian accent, which for me adds to my enjoyment of the podcast. I've described him before as Dan Carlin with an Italian accent. His uh, podcasts uh, have similarity to hardcore history in a unscripted sounding, but long and descriptive and dramatic and covering history uh, from all sorts of topics. Um, those of you who like your ancient history, there are episodes on the flight of the 10,000 and Spartacus. But I also really enjoyed the episode The Iceman about uh, the oldest European body ever found frozen in the Alps. Um, and this was found, you know, only in the last uh, 20 years, I think. And uh, what uh, modern science was able to discover about the body was just fascinating. So go check out historyonfirepodcast.com or on iTunes. <laughs>